Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is a special live episode of Dispatches. The Horn of Africa is facing many challenges this year as conflicts escalate in countries like Ethiopia and Sudan. Across much of the region, states are struggling to develop a stronger internal and regional unity. What is integration and unity in the Horn of Africa? What are the obstacles to this in 2024? What's behind the instability in Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia? How does it tie into the horn becoming a major pull as we shift into a multipolar world? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by my Breakthrough News colleague, Eugene Perrier. Well, Rania, thanks so much for having me. Eugene, it's so good to have you back on to discuss the Horn of Africa again. I mean, it's been a while since we've actually done an, an episode on this region. So there's so many developments to, to bring in here. But um, actually, before we get started, I should remind our audience, if you are watching, first of all, make sure you do like the show. Helps in the algorithm. Also, if you just do support, if you want to support Breakthrough News, you can become a member of Breakthrough News by going to patreon.com slash breakthrough news where you can access exclusive content. Um, all right. So the topic at hand, Eugene. Oh, oh, we're doing that. Oh, is this the freedom side or is this dispatch? I mean, now listen, I'm just, I'm just trying to promote I'm just trying to promote the brand, <laughs> all right? Just trying to promote the brand. <laughs> this is where I get confused. So also I should note me and Eugene host a live stream called The Freedom Side every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. So forgive me for being a little like disoriented at the moment because right now this is Dispatches, not The Freedom Side. <laughs> um, but we do have exclusive merch you can access if you do become a member of Breakthrough News. And that's why Eugene was holding up his very cool thank you Breakthrough News mug. So thank you for that, Eugene. Thank you. Um, but now that we've got that out of the way, I'm very excited to talk about the Horn of Africa. There's so much happening and you are just the best at contextualizing everything. And so because it's been a while since we've talked about the region, I think a good place to start would be maybe to remind our audience why this particular area uh, on this massive continent of Africa uh, matters so much. You know, what is its geostrategic significance? Why does it matter so much to U.S. imperialism. Um, so why don't you break that down and then we can, we can go you know, into more specifics from there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's a great question and it's a critically important question. I mean, I think when we look at the Horn of Africa and the sort of broader uh, region, if you will, sometimes, for, sometimes people will refer to it as the Horn of Africa slash Nile Basin region because countries like Egypt, Uganda, Kenya, uh, that are generally in the horn, um, but not necessarily thought of as quote unquote the Horn of Africa, but there is sort of a very shared uh, South Sudan, another, uh, another example of that very shared destiny, clearly a shared geographic area. And I think that is the, really the key factor of what you pointed out, the geostrategic significance is the Horn of Africa, the broader Horn of Africa region is essentially the bridge between Asia and Africa which ultimately means that it sits right at the crossroads of the world. And in an increasingly globalized and extremely globalized world capitalist economy, sitting at the crossroads of the world really means you also are sitting at the crossroads of global commerce. And that, of course, is relevant to the various waterways. But then in and of themselves, these countries have a, quite a bit of significance to them in terms of the direction of Africa, the region, the world more broadly, in terms of the, the resources that they have from you know natural and material resources, like, for instance, gold, which is in great abundance in countries like Sudan and Ethiopia in particular, but also originally 
Eritrea, when we look at sort of natural endowments, uh, you know, of course, the Nile River we can mention, which is, you know, one of the most well-known, the fact that Ethiopia has the second largest hydropower potential uh, on the African continent, 45,000 megawatts, which, you know, you could argue is enough power for about 18 million homes, but puts a country like Ethiopia very much at the forefront uh, in terms of the possibilities for green energy, which of course, looking into the 21st century is very relevant. You know, Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, especially those three, but, you know, are some of the most populous countries in Africa in and of themselves. Uh, but I think when we think, of, so, you know, thinking about human resources, but I think when we think about human resources, it's a lot deeper than that. So when you look at Eritrea, Somalia, Djibouti, the other countries, I mean, there's quite a bit in terms of uh, not only the number of people, which is you know about four hundred and twenty, I think some odd million people in this collection of countries, the Egon plus Egypt, you could say. Yes, one hundred forty. I just looked it up. I mean, that's like a huge number of people. It's a massive number of people. So you can see that, but also you know very wide and very accomplished diasporas. That you know to the extent that there's economic. Uh, growth there that also becomes a, a, a you know force multiplier in terms of the issue of human and material resources. So you have this region that has in and of itself a huge amount of human and material resources and significant potential when we're talking about 21st century green economy type pieces. You have you know nearly 500 million people in and of itself. You also have the geostrategic crossroads of the world, bridge between Asia and Africa reality that makes the region both geostrategic in so many different ways and also have its own potentialities, which in and of itself speaks to uh, those two things crossing over to themselves, this region being a critical node when we talk about moving from a unipolar to a multipolar world, right? Mm -hmm. Like Egypt and Ethiopia are two of the newer members of the new members of BRICS that ascended to BRICS. Uh, at the, the beginning of this year, on January 1, I believe, of this year. And when you think about these different pieces, and I appreciate you having the map there, you know, there's a lot of reasons and things we can get into, but I think this is one of the reasons these two countries are brought into BRICS. I mean, they're the second and third uh, largest population. Uh, and of course, we've already talked about some of the economic potential that exists in these regions. And certainly they are two nodes, major nodes of industrialization uh, in the African continent, in addition to being close to the Red Sea, in addition to being right across from West Asia and the Gulf states, which also are a major development node. So when you start to look at it all as one piece, you can see that the sort of broader Horn of Africa Nile Basin region is very well situated to become in and of itself a pole and a node that could have deep impact not only in the African continent and lifting Africa out of poverty, breaking from neocolonialism, but starting to shift the world away from a U.S. unipolar or if you prefer U.S.-EU unipolar imperial system towards a more diverse and hopefully just and fair world. So when you put all those things together, I think you can see the intense geostrategic significance uh, of, of the area and why all of the different conflicts that are happening there uh, do tend to draw, at least to some degree, quite a bit of attention because their ripple effects can be very significant in the type of world uh, you know, we're moving into uh, here in the, the 21st century. And just real quick, before we go into specific countries, I, I just wondered if you could maybe... Uh, uh, elaborate on that a bit just to explain the importance specifically to U.S. imperialism, because obviously most of our audience uh, is based in the U.S. or, you know, in, in some part of the imperial core. So why why is it so important what happens in like Sudan or Ethiopia or Somalia to like Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden? 
Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it's the piece that you you know teased out there in your in your your question, which is the geostrategic significance. I mean, you've got the Bab el Mindeb Strait, the Red Sea, and the Suez Canal, which all sort of you know the Suez Canal coming through Egypt. You have the Red Sea, then you have the Bab el Mindeb Strait, in there, uh, which empties out into the Indian Ocean and is the link to the Pacific. I think it's something like ten to twelve percent of all global commerce flows through this route. So ultimately, whatever happens in all of these different countries is critical to securing the you know the global commerce which capitalism is dependent upon i mean capitalism as a system imperialism as a system is predicated on a certain amount of stability by which commerce can take place so the free flow of goods is critically important to that as i always point out when i talk about this issue to people if you remember when that ship got stuck in the suez canal and how it was yeah. a major crisis now of course we could speak more also about what yemen is doing um, to push back against this genocide uh, that's taking place in gaza but i think another reminder of how geostrategically important it is. And I mean, this is a big reason why certainly the U.S. has backed the destabilization of Somalia, for instance. But we could go on and on and on and just say that that, first and foremost, in and of itself, I think is absolutely and critically important to the ability of the global imperial powers to carry out their system. But I think it also goes a little bit deeper than that because ultimately you have this other issue. I mean, when you read the national defense strategy of the United States of America, which is, it changes, you know, president to president, but it's been pretty it's been basically the same since 1991. And one of the key factors that the U.S. puts forward in the national defense strategy is, first, that the U.S. not only has the right but should control the entire world, determine what the rules are that other countries have to follow, and then enforce those rules. So that's the rules-based international order. The U.S. makes up all the rules and forces everyone else to follow them on penalty of sanctions or war. So that's one. But two, how to maintain that is to maintain critical control over key regional nodes. And this is something that's talked about quite a bit in the context of uh, the most recent national defense strategy by President Biden around the importance of regional alliances because having strong regional alliances and anchor states that are essentially integrated into the U.S. military political structure uh, are really the function, are really the, the functional means by which the U.S. maintains regional control. I mean, obviously the U.S. has tons of bases, a huge military all around the world, but even with that, when you're talking about controlling the world, like that is not enough. So this actually has to be embedded in a system of states that are want to be a part of the same system. And historically, this has been crucial to the U.S. role in the Horn of Africa, uh, you know, in, in the you know, let's say prior to 2018, when there was a change of government in Ethiopia, you had from, you know, roughly 1991, 92 uh, to 2018, a government that was headed up by the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, that was an anchor state that essentially was working, you know, hand in glove with U.S. foreign policy to destabilize Somalia, to put pressure and isolate Eritrea, and so on and so forth, to make sure that the region stayed within the bounds of what is considered allowable or controllable by the U.S. So I think it's, you know, twofold in that sense. But I also will add a third issue, which is, you know, not just the need to control global commerce, not just the need to have uh, control over the region where it's taking place, but to then take a couple steps back. You know, these are, as we've pointed out, areas that have immense 
economic possibilities. So you think about the huge number of people who are living there. You think about the context of the new Cold War that's happening right now with China. You think about the overall issues that capitalism is facing in terms of a declining rate of return on investment. So one of the ways to address the new Cold War with China and the rate of return on investment is to open up new areas to exploitation by foreign multinationals coming primarily from the West, which means you have to find a lot of desperate, poor people. Most of those people are the overwhelming number of them now are heavily concentrated in Africa. It's the youngest continent. 70% of the continent is under, I think, the age of 35. I've I've traveled across the Horn of Africa. I can tell you that is very true uh, in those countries as well, where the population trends towards younger people. So this is an immense reservoir of of both material resources. Like, obviously, they want to go in there and get gold. There's uranium in Sudan. There's all these different pieces. But also the human resources, I think, are critically important to maintaining the dynamism of capitalism as China and other countries in Southeast Asia are seeking to move up the value chain and are starting to resist and push back on the economic model that was put forward starting in the late 70s and the early 80s, where they were sort of the warren of low-wage labor that gave a nice little push uh, to, to the U.S. economy. The U.S. thought these countries would always remain totally subservient. They had different ideas. Now that they have different ideas, the U.S. is trying to isolate them, kneecap the economy in China, but they also have to do via quote-unquote friendshoring to find different spaces. So ultimately, you want countries in Africa to be more on board with shipping the resources to either you or people people who you like and not yeah. asking for very much for it to maintain you know, that edge in terms of resources and so on and so forth. And also places that will be very open to the sort of economic schemes you want to bring forward to uh, exploit the human resources of Africa, which I think is an underrated but an important factor in what is governing uh, imperial strategy in Africa today. You know, I, I, all that's so important, and I want to um, kind of use that as a as a good segue to elaborate a bit more on the significance of something that you already touched on, which is the fact that Ethiopia and Egypt have both joined BRICS. I mean, I know Egypt's sort of at this like crossroads intersections. You know, it's like a North African country. It's also a Middle Eastern country. It's also kind of Horn of Africa, kind of not. Um, but all that said, these are two. You mentioned they have the biggest populations. They're two of, I think, the bigger economies in this in this area. So you mentioned multipolarity. You mentioned the importance of this emerging world where China is this huge economic player. How? What's the significance here of Ethiopia and Egypt joining BRICS, given everything that you just explained? Well, I think it's an important question. And, you know, obviously I'm not in the room where they were deciding this. So I'm just giving you my take on why why they opened (laughs) it up. Because, you know, there were a lot of questions of who is going to be brought in. And I have to say, Ethiopia was to many people a surprise. It was not a surprise to me. I had actually been predicting it. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But when you look at the context of what BRICS is as an alliance, I mean, BRICS, and you look at what was recently stated, by the way, by uh, Mr. Lavrov, the foreign secretary uh, in the the foreign minister, rather in Russia, where he said, "Well, BRICS is not going to set up a secretariat or any big, you know, sort of bureaucracy or anything like that. It's not that type of alliance. BRICS is more of an alliance that's trying to consolidate the shift from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. It's a grouping, I think, of the the initial grouping of essentially sort of the stronger economies." on each continent, although, you know, some of them, India, Russia, and China are on the same continent, but sort of in each region of the world um, that were uh, in, in this sort of middle state, right, where they were obviously 
you know, higher than almost all other developing countries in terms of the quality, the standard of living, the, you know, development of the economy and so on and so forth, but still significantly below where the imperial core is, right? And so by banding together and coming together, it increases their diplomatic, social, cultural, political clout, and so on and so forth, both working with one another and exerting their will against other countries in order to try to beat down and break down the various different challenges, obstacles, and things that are put in the way of developing countries countries moving forward. And of course, we know the United States and Europe do not want developing countries to grow because their entire standard of living is predicated on a division between the global north and the global south. So I think when you look at Egypt and Ethiopia joining BRICS, you also have to look at the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia and UAE also just joined BRICS and that this is basically the same region of the world. Like I said, right? Africa, West Asia, the bridge between Asia and Africa, the crossroads of the world. So in terms of consolidating the move towards multipolarity, I think that what the BRICS countries were looking at is the fact that Egypt and Ethiopia are sort of two ends of the same sort of broader Nile Basin Horn of Africa region. So their own development has the ability to consolidate a greater sort of space in Africa and create more economic opportunity uh, for themselves, the Africans in these various countries, and also various different BRICS nations. And that because of the reality, the different realities that are there, I'll just name a few because we could go on and on and on. But Here's a couple. You know, one, when you think about, I'll keep coming back to the number of people because the number of people is very relevant. You have a lot of younger people who want to work and want to not be living in poverty, which means that you have a lot of individuals who are available to develop and work in various different industries, both Ethiopia and Egypt. You know, there's different things we could say about them, but, you know, in Egypt, for instance, they have the Suez Canal uh, economic zone, which is becoming a big sort of hub or at least potential hub for industrial opportunities for people from all countries, but there's big uh, industrial parks there run by Russia and China to be able to create, bring together, build goods that can be sold and moved into Africa, into Europe, into the Middle East, into other parts of Asia, you know, crossroads of the world, very central location to build things. Ethiopia similarly has an industrial park policy sort of designed to do the same thing. You also have a country like Ethiopia that has so much potential from the point of view of uh, green power. I think that in the era of carbon credits is also something that is underrated in terms of leverage, right? Like being able to consolidate growth and development in a place like that, where you could maybe power things with hydropower, especially hydropower, then you can actually use that as a form of leverage to companies and other countries that want to show that they care about climate change and are looking for places to build things, uh, where, and, and, and operate businesses where they can claim different carbon credits and things like that. So that gives you a certain strategic uh, control over where especially European businesses are setting things up in the terms of trade and all these other different pieces to it. Um, both countries have very large militaries that are relatively advanced and in some cases, you know, decently regarded. So I'll just say all that to say that when you also put those two facts that they're right next to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, UAE, Iran is like not right next there, but basically close. You have the ability to synergize the sort of China, Russia, Iran, India mm-hmm. element that's happening in BRICS, the Russia, China, India element with the Gulf states that's also happening in BRICS with this sort of Horn of Africa, Nile Basin, uh, India, China, uh, Russia, and also, by the way, Brazil is trying to play a much bigger role in this, uh, and South Africa, of course, as well, sort of motion that's happening in the BRICS. So across the spectrum there from the sort of Nile Basin, Horn of Africa, 
into West Asia, into the Iranian sort of subcontinental area and over into China, you're consolidating clear sort of poles, if you will, which will help at least I think in their thought process, help the possibility of development in all of these various areas to make them more significant polls and erode the hegemony over time of the US and the EU by trying to build on these complementarities. So I think it's both the complementarities and the synergies that these countries themselves have, but also where they're located geostrategically alongside other new BRICS and the existing BRICS to try to consolidate the motion that BRICS was set up to push forward, which was to make sure that it is in a world where the U.S. makes all the rules and everyone else is forced to follow. There's a lot of other challenges that come with that. I'm not saying it's some panacea or some heaven or something that we should say, yes, this is the greatest thing ever just to have a multipolar world. But it is the precondition between moving beyond a world where Europe and the United States say everyone else has to be poor for some, some small subset of our population to be rich. Yeah, and you know, of course, the, the, there are a lot of challenges. And right now, the the region, the countries across the region are, are facing so many internal struggles at the moment that, um, you know, it's hard to know where to start. But I think maybe a good place to start would be Ethiopia. Uh, we're also going to, you know, talk a bit about Sudan and Somalia. Um, but, you know, one theme that when you and I were talking about what's been taking place, one theme that you kept coming back to was, there's this really struggle right now to develop a stronger internal unity um, across uh, inside these countries, uh, which also like you need that in order to have you know African unity, right, or even regional unity. Um, and so, you know, these the challenges that Ethiopia is facing, for example, are major roadblocks to accomplishing that. And you know, we haven't talked about Ethiopia in a while, but. Um, you know, you and I went to Ethiopia a couple of years ago and covered the war that took place there. So I feel like at least for me, and I think maybe a lot of other people who haven't been following like every single development since uh, that that war has sort of come to somewhat of a close, the war between the state and the TPLF, you know, Ethiopia's have been facing some serious internal conflicts, um, not exactly like a civil war, but there's a lot taking place. So why don't you, let, let's start there. Let's talk about the aftermath of the war between the government Ethiopia and the TPLF, which was this uh, political party that dominated the country for a very, very long time in a dictatorial way, supported by the U.S. Once they were pushed out of power democratically, um, they, you know, launched basically a war against the sitting government of the country, um, and that's that's kind of like where where we were last at. Um, when when Ethiopia was in the news a lot. It hasn't been in the news so much since then. So tell us what's been happening since that war with the TPLF and the government uh, de-escalated um, and what's taking place now. Yeah, well, I hope everyone's ready to, to stay here till 5 p.m. Eastern time uh, to go over all of that. But no, I, I think it's critically important the way it has fallen out of the news. I mean, you know, I think bottom line, the thing we have to just undermine, uh, underline here is, is an, a, an immense humanitarian crisis in the wake of the end of the war of the TPLF, which is a continuation uh, of some problems that existed before the war, but they've really moved forward. I mean, you've got I think something like 4.3 million IDPs uh, still uh, internally displaced people. 
in Ethiopia. And, and you know, there's there are some issues, there's some conversations and some things happening to say we're going to move people back. But the reality is, is whether you're in the IDP camp or being moved back, there are not a lot of opportunities to have real legitimate reconstruction. Um, you've got about 20 million people, so about a sixth of the population of Ethiopia uh, that is receiving food aid. So that basically means they're starving, right? Like if the aid doesn't come, they're not going to be able to yeah. to get it. And then in addition, the conflicts that will go will go on to. But uh, so I just wanted to start there because there are a number of people all across the country, Afar, Amhara, uh, you know, really everywhere in the country who are really still suffering, especially in these IDP camps and and really uh, need to continue uh, to raise that issue importantly. But I think one of the things that's important in terms of framing this and looking at where we are is, you know, the TPLF uprising against the central government in Ethiopia was essentially a response to a the beginning of a transitional process in Ethiopia around the politics of how the country was going to be governed. You'd had the TPLF, of course, that had been in power since the early 1990s, and they had really alienated even significant elements of their own base. And the prime minister currently, Abiy Ahmed, was able to come to power specifically because, you know, really starting in 2014 and going on for several years, huge protests were erupting against the TPLF in the regions that are the, you know, sort of traditional home areas of the two largest uh, ethnic groups in Ethiopia, a country about 83 ethnic groups. Uh, and that's the Oromia region and the Oromo people and the Amhara region and what are known as the Amhara people. And there were huge protests that were basically underlining the intense income inequality, the huge amount of unemployment that young people were facing. Basically, the fact that even though Ethiopia had had tremendous economic growth uh, over the past years prior to that, you know, five, 10 years or whatever, and was kind of the darling in many ways of the Western conversation about African growth, that the vast majority of the country was still living in, in basically abject poverty, and that whatever sort of reductions of extreme poverty and things like that that had happened, the opportunities for advancement were not really there. And that on top of all of that, because of the way the TPLF decided to run the country, which was essentially an ethnic form of divide and rule, you know, who you were and where you were from actually then became critically important to your ability to access the meager amount of resources where they were. So you had people who were responding in the millions to the just general plight of Ethiopians, quite frankly, no matter where they live in the country, which is that they are deeply impoverished and lacking in significant opportunities. Uh, and that's from education to access to clean water, access to healthcare, access to electricity, and so on and so forth. And the fact that in the midst of this intense scarcity, there was then this layered sort of ethnic competition that was set up with Tigrayans affiliated with the TPLF you know, that's important. They're affiliated with the ruling party sort of at the top. And then you would have in each region people affiliated with the ruling party on top of that region. And then everything else kind of flowed down from there. So you had this sort of general condition of poverty, exploitation, and, and deprivation existing in this sort of layered structure of oppression based on your ethnicity. And so people were rising up against that. And as I pointed out when we talked about this at the time, Rania, uh, you know, part of what took place in 2018, which was when Abiy Ahmed becomes the prime minister and the TPLF is essentially moved out of power. I mean, his history, of course, comes from the political coalition created by the TPLF, but he himself is an Oromo. But what I was saying at the time that you may remember is I said, you know, I actually, that Abiy Ahmed basically was opening Pandora's box and who knew what was going to come out of Pandora's box. 
difference. Because at the end of the day, these are very deep-seated differences that go back in many ways for a very long time and where there is also, and this is, I think, critically important, a very different shared, there's not really a shared understanding of them, right? I mean, there are different groups that have different grievances, but there's no sort of universalized understanding uh, of those grievances. So not only do you have deep-seated issues, but you have trouble creating common ground around how to resolve the issues because there's so much disagreement about their roots, where they're coming from, and all these different sort of pieces to them. So I think it was clear to, to many people at the time that there were going to be a lot of, of challenges here um, and that a lot of changes were being made very quickly without a lot of preparation. And that would open up a lot of possibilities too. Now the TPLF, and this I think people, some people were expecting, many people were not expecting, I certainly was not expecting it at the time, launching this war created a lot of unity in the country. Because if there was one thing people could agree on, it was that the TPLF was like <laughs> definitely bad, that people yeah. wanted them gone, that they wanted to, they wanted something different. So now with that war being over, the, the determination of what that something different is, is now becoming an issue of, of great uh, uh, conflict. And, you know, there's, there's different layers to it. Some of these conflicts, of course, predate 2018 between different ethnicities, especially around the borders. This is something that happens all over Africa. It's also true in the Horn of Africa, and it's definitely true in Ethiopia, that a lot of conflict that happens happens around borders. It happens between herders and farmers, and it happens as part of a, of a, a, a competition over land resources, um, who has the right to live there, who has the right to use it for their economic activity. But because this is often based in ethnicity, differences in ethnicity, sometimes in religion and language, um, you know, it also takes on another character. It has sort of e economic roots, but it has all these other very potent issues that are sort of tied in together with it. And so now I think basically what you have happening in Ethiopia, and I'll stop here and maybe we can say a little bit more, but just from a framing perspective, is you have a competition between various political actors over what the future of the country is going to be. Is it going to be centralized or is it going to be federalized? Is it culturally going to be sort of the cultural manifestations that I think the world uh, recognizes uh, are, are as Ethiopian, quote unquote, sort of related to the culture, religion, politics of the Solomonic dynasty that ruled the country for many years? Or is there going to be a more sort of ethno-religious pluralist reality? How is that going to be codified? And all these things are creating major controversies, um, especially on an ethnic level, but also religiously, uh, and also just in terms of, you know, constitutionally and different pieces like that. And so, yeah, let's let's go into like a couple um, different angles of what's taking place right now, because, you know, basically, essentially what you have happening is in the aftermath of all this, just to summarize a little bit what you just said, is you have the central government, right, of Abiy Ahmed that's fighting on multiple fronts now. The country's not united anymore the way it was when it was a fight just against the TPLF. So let's first talk about the Amhara region. Um, which we, I believe we got to visit the Amhara region a few years ago, but at yeah. that time, it, the the main issue was the war with the TPLF. That's not so much the case anymore. There's a conflict taking place in the Amhara region. Tell us, Eugene, what's going on there. Yes. Well, this is certainly the the getting the most attention in Ethiopia of all the conflicts. It's certainly the the sort of hottest conflict of all the ones that it's happening. And it's got roots, as you point out, directly in how the war ended. So, you know, the basic reality that you you have here is just starting currently, the ENDF, the Ethiopian military is waging what I think they would call a counterinsurgency campaign against sort of a loosely organized militia known as Fano. Now, Fano has its actually roots predate the, the, the war, but it came into significant prominence because basically Fano was groups of people 
And like I said, it's, it's, it's loosely structured. So there are a lot of people who, you know, identify with Fano, but it's not like there's some like central command sitting in like one mm-hmm. bunker somewhere directing everybody. Because the nature of the group is this was almost like a, a grassroots uprising against the TPLF offensive. And it had some roots in traditional local self-defense forces. Um, it had some roots also in the opposition, the armed opposition to the TPLF uh, that existed during their rule. But it really was supercharged by people who, and you, you, Ron, you, we were there together. I mean, I was actually remember talking to one guy at Lali, when we were at Lali Bella, the historic churches, who was like a car mechanic who just when he heard the TPLF is coming, you know, he was like, let's go. Like, I'm ready mm-hmm. to step to the forefront. If someone gives me a rifle, I'm ready to fight to defend my territory and to defend, you know, my people in my region. And so, you know, maybe 100,000 people, maybe more than that, joined Fano. And it becomes, you know, a major factor in the defeat of the TPLF, uh, becomes a major factor in, uh, you know, the overall, just the overall conflict and how it plays out. But it also then becomes its own political actor. So in the wake of the, the conflict, you have this issue. And when we talk about centralism versus federalism, I mean, it's clear that the central government of Abiy Ahmed, it's clear to me, at least, I mean, maybe people disagree with me here, um, is determined to have a stranglehold on power in all the regions uh, and to not have anyone who could potentially challenge their supremacy uh, in any way, shape, or form. So the issue crops up of disarming Fano, which is also related to something about disarming the special forces of Amhara. Like basically each police force in each region had their own like military to some degree called special forces. So uh, the special forces, I think, were seen by the central government as being sort of too independent, too profano, uh, another potential source of power. So the issue comes up of, well, we should disarm them. A country should only have one army. And you know, I think you look at Sudan, which we'll talk about, there's certainly a lot to the sort of general principle. But the context of it was very different because you had the issue, one, of the political status of Tigray. Now, you know, starting in 1991, the TPLF had claimed an area that a lot of Amhara feels a part of Amhara state as part of Tigray, called so, quote-unquote, quote Western Tigray. This is where they were smuggling in a lot of their weapons from through Sudan uh, to wage this war, different pieces like that. Uh, Amhara forces affiliated with Fano, uh, some affiliated with Fano, I would say, were able to, you know, I think they would call it liberate this territory. Nonetheless, they gained control of this territory uh, and, you know, I think did not want to give it back. And there are a lot of sort of complex issues I don't think we have time to get into here about, you know, the ethnicity of who lives there and all that, this, that, and the third. But either way, the sum total of it is what Amhara people were saying is, okay, well, we have this unresolved issue where it's unclear whether or not the central government is going to allow the TPLF to come back into power in this area. We also have the ongoing issue with the OLA, the Aroma Liberation Army, which have been clashing with Fano and have been affiliated with the TPLF. Uh, And, you know, the basic point being, there was still not a sense of security and safety in the region. And Fano especially is the force that most people trust to defend the region against those who might try to come in, ethnically cleanse, seize land, whatever it may be. And so to disarm them was a, was an issue that was was people were fearful. They didn't know what was going to happen. There were massacres by the TPLF in this in some of these regions during the war. Brutal fighting that's going on. People want the war to end. And so the thought is, is there some sort of ulterior motive? So long story short, Fano does not disarm. And so the federal government of Ethiopia has decided to wage a war against them. And they're waging the war, quite frankly, like they've waged the war in the other regions of the country, whether we're talking about Aromia, whether we're talking about Tigray, in that they're relying heavily on their drones and drone strikes. And we know that there's always a lot of 
you know, both deliberate and collateral damage from drone strikes, no matter what you claim you're trying to hit. Uh, it's definitely sort of a, a blunt weapon uh, that that can create a lot of drama. And then there are also, you know, there's mass arrests. There's also, you know, military campaigns that are going on. Like in the first couple weeks of this year, across all of Ethiopia, there was like 27 battles, I think. Um, and like the majority of those are happening in Amhara region. Um, and they're happening between various Fano groups and the central government of Ethiopia. This has meant that for a lot of IDPs, um, who are internally displaced, they have to stay internally displaced. It means more people are dis- internally displaced. A part of that also is sort of the forcible moving of IDPs back to where they're from, but without any real significant support and oftentimes in areas where there's still conflict going on. So it's become a, a big issue. I mean, the controversial issue, and I guess this is the one, Rania, where I'm sure even some of my friends are going to get upset with me, uh-oh, is, uh-oh. Is, is how to <laughs> characterize what's taking place there. Mm-hmm. And there is... A many people are saying that it's an Amhara genocide, that this is being done not just sort of for power politics reasons, but because Abiy Ahmed represents a fascistic, a Romo ethnic supremacist ideology that wants to ethnically cleanse Amhara. So it's an mm-hmm. Amhara genocide. People who know me know that I have shied away from the phrase, not because I want to deny the fact that there is obviously, you know, ethnically motivated violence that I think, quite frankly, in many places does look like ethnic cleansing in certain areas, and it has been going on for some time, even predating this. But I don't personally think that genocide is the exact right name for it. Mm. Uh, From my point of view, if you really look at what Abiy Ahmed is doing, I think, and what the sort of broader prosperity party that he leads, it seems to me like they essentialize ethnicity whenever they need and however they need. And in the same way, he was willing to sort of use drone strikes relatively indiscriminately in Aromia, and certainly there's evidence of that. Um, I just personally am less sympathetic to the TPLF, but nonetheless, he was using it heavily then. Like, you know, whatever they have to sort of rely on, it seems to me that their main goal is not the ethnic cleansing of Amhara people as a people. Their main goal is to make sure that whoever controls Amhara region is 100% allied with them and that there are no Mm -hmm. alternative power sources. And thus... There is quite a bit of violence taking place. There is quite a bit of it's, it's killing of civilians that's going on. The central government's own human rights commission, the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, is writing about this. So it's not like this is made up. Uh, there's obviously, you know, some some very brutal killing going on, and it's coming directly uh, from forces affiliated to the government. But my personal view is this is sort of a deeper issue because when you look at what's taking place in Aromia, this was, you know, Abiy Ahmed isn't a Romo. So, I, you know, why would his ideology also be for ethnic cleansing his own people? So yeah. to me, it's really more of an issue of power politics and how the military is being used to enforce a certain political structure that has strong ethnic overtones. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of hate speech that's involved in this from, you know, different people in the lower level. And I think that's being deliberately mobilized. Um, but, you know, it can kind of cut both ways too. And I think that's one of the issues that is that bedevils the whole process because, you know, you look at, quote unquote, Western Aromia, where there have, you know, going back to the TPLF time, uh, the war with the TPLF been quite a number of killings of Amhara in what is technically Aromia uh, over who has the right to live there. Like if you're not originally from, if you're not an Aromo, do you have the right to have a farm there? Now, people have been having farms there for a very long time. So to just arbitrarily say you can't do it now um, is obviously absurd. You know, many of the people who are attacking Amhara people are obviously moving on a basis that is designed to ethnically cleanse this area in order to say that it's just 
for quote unquote Oromo. But that's, you know, also another important issue here because Ethiopia has a lot of land title issues. It's like not clear who owns all the land. So a lot of times your people are promoting ethnic cleansing and saying this is for Oromo. Is it for the Oromo or is it for you? You know, so you can control who parcels out the land and which group of poor peasants get to live there. But the reverse side of that coin is Fano uh, is fighting you know, at least in their words, on behalf of many of these villagers in what is technically Oromia who are Amhara. And if you talk to a lot of Oromo civil society organizations, they are collecting very similar evidence and saying that Fano is killing civilians, that they're doing it in large numbers, that it's ethnically motivated. And sort of both sides are making very similar claims about what's taking place here. And so I say all that not to say that there's necessarily an equivalence or one side is right or one side is wrong, but I think sometimes the way that this is labeled, in the same way, quite frankly, that the the sort of Tigray genocide issue was manipulated, even though obviously a lot of people were dying in Tigray, but why? Because of the TPLF's uprising. What we have here is a power politics based based on ethnicity. And this is frequent, historically. When there is very limited access to resources, elements of the elites especially are going to try to find ways to mobilize people to have the control over the limited resources that exist. And who you are, where you're from, what language you speak, what religion you practice. I mean, these are some of the most potent issues for all people. Sometimes they have roots that go back thousands of years. So they're powerful motivators for political purposes. But I say all that just to say, I think the part of the challenge here is for whatever is right or wrong about what's happening in the central government of Ethiopia. If it becomes Amhara people versus Romo people, the situation is lost. The whole, forget it. The whole region is lost. Since the time of the Romans, but certainly since the time of the Berlin Conference, the entire way Europeans and Americans have controlled Africa is divide and conquer to try to get Africans to be in as many little, small, warring ethnicities, tribes, countries, whatever they can, to keep them from uniting and becoming more powerful. So quite frankly, if it just becomes an ethnic conflict where just because of who you are, you're labeled the enemy, Horn of Africa, Africa is lost everywhere if we approach the problems and the challenges of the conflicts in Africa in that way. So I think it's important to tease out the sort of political elements of this, the fact that I think certain individuals are looking to put themselves in a power position, but not actually in neocolonialism or lift people out of poverty or make any of those significant changes. And they're waging the wars in such a way that they are designed to intensify in every possible way every ethno-religious conflict that exists inside of the country in Ethiopia to maximize it, as opposed to look for common ground to unite people around what a shared future could look like. That's why all these people are focused way more on maximalist-type politics and opposed to sort of unifying-based politics. Now, I know not everyone's going to love that explanation, but from my point of view, I think it's important to recognize the actual violence that's taking place in all of these regions and that a lot of it is really motivated about who wants to be in a position as a power broker, both nationally, I think in the terms of the prosperity party that wants to control everything, um, and regionally, where people don't want to be fully under the the yoke of the prosperity party and want to be their own sort of power brokers. But anyway, I'll just leave that there. <laughs> well, did you want to talk at all about the, like, uh, elaborate at all about the Aromia region? Because I know, I mean, I know that there's a, uh... A lot happening there as well. Um, and there's, there's a, I mean, it kind of goes back to what you were saying. It's like, I think it's also important to emphasize, by the way, that so much of this, not to say, not to say the people locally are not blameless, that like certain leaders aren't blameless, but so much of this is an outgrowth of colonial borders, colonial divide and conquer, like you said. And I think that always has to be, you know, central to how we understand all of this. And if, if we forget that, then 
it's like Europe, European colonialism kind of wins if you if you let that slide in this narrative. Um, but I just wanted to see before we move on to another topic, do you want to talk or elaborate a bit more about the Aromia region? I'll just say briefly, it's the largest okay. region. Uh, uh, Romos are the plurality of the population. Um, you know, the there's a complicated history of, eh, it's not really complicated. I think people say things are complicated, it's because you don't know the details. When it, you know the details, it's not complicated. But if yeah. you don't know the details, <laughs> it is a little more complicated. But the baseline point that needs to be made is that the Oromo Liberation Army is waging its own war and conflict uh, to change the politics of Ethiopia. And they are an outgrowth of a broader movement called the Oromo Liberation Front, where it existed for many decades, um, fighting against the Derg government in the 80s, the TPLF in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and ultimately, since 2018, the OLF has broken into different you know, elements, some that are working closer with the Prosperity Party, some that are very alienated from the Prosperity Party but don't take up arms, and the OLA that's taking up arms. So during the TPLF uprising, the OLA was working with the TPLF, they were being trained by the TPLF, and they were sort of trying to work to create this this destabilization uh, of the central government to bring the TPLF back to power. Since then, the OLA has obviously lost its biggest uh, ally. Um, There's still, you know, quite a bit of things that are going on in terms of not only fighting, but, you know, blockades, kidnappings, all different things like that, that they use to, to, you know, disrupt commerce and raise money and sort of unofficial taxes and so on and so forth. There've been a couple failed rounds of negotiations with the central government um, that is there, but there's still this on. So inside of Aromia in itself, there is a division amongst different Aromo political parties, political forces, political actors about what the role of the, of, of, the central government should be? Should Aromia have more sort of federal responsibilities? Should it have a more sort of central uh, role in terms of a more centralized government? All these things are sort of being debated and fought out sometimes with with weapons and guns um, that are taking place, but it continues to be, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, an ongoing conflict that also has different cultural overtones because and this is also a complex issue, right? And when I go back to the issue of like shared histories and shared understandings, you know, the history of Ethiopia, right? Like people know, people, average person probably knows about Haile Selassie. You heard of him, even if you only heard of him in a, in a, in a Bob Marley song. So you know that there was a monarchy, the Solomonic dynasty. It was there for many, many centuries, has a long, long history. Uh, it's sort of how Ethiopia is known to the world, but like all kingdoms and empire, well, not all kingdoms, certainly all empires, you know, it is formed by a smaller region subsuming other regions. And many Oromo feel deeply aggrieved because their interpretation of what took place is that it was a form of settler colonialism by Amhara people in Oromia, which was not originally the core territory. And that when Emperor Menelik especially came in there, uh, that the things that were done were settler colonial, ethnic cleansing, selling people into slavery, um, so on and so forth, and that they are an oppressed nationality because of that, and that a major part of how Ethiopia moves forward is there needs to be a greater, you know, uh, uh, you know, role for their language, their culture, the way they approach a religion, different ways like that. Um, and that has to be a big part of it. And that in and of itself is a major cultural flashpoint in terms of how this is playing out. Um, suffice it to say that many of the people who consider themselves to be Amhara activists basically dispute every element of the story as I just told it. Now, I could go on and on to try to talk more about that. But what I think is really actually not important, I think what's actually critical to understand is just that there are two narratives that neither side shares 
and it makes it difficult to find common ground. And that's partially what's making some of these things so intractable is that there's a lack of shared narratives. And there's a lot of feeling when someone asserts their narrative that you're making very strong value judgments about them. And thus it becomes an even bigger sort of emotional roadblock to really being able to find ways to work together. And I think that sort of cultural, religious, ethnic language element is a big part of why you know, it's struggling to get over some of these hurdles. Now, that being said, and I just want to close on this. I personally, and this is why I want to really focus in on the issue that I raised earlier about not making it Amhara versus Oromo people. I don't think there's much evidence whatsoever that that's how people in Oromia or Amhara view it. I I think there are a lot of hate mongers, quite frankly, on both sides that want to make it about that. Um, But I think as we saw in 2014, when the Amhara and the Oromo poor youth came together to essentially overthrow the TPLF through this mass movement that also brought in other uh, people, brought in the Muslim community, others like that, um, that there's a lot of desire for shared prosperity to be the future of Ethiopia and wanting to get beyond a lot of this. And I think that it's tricky, it's difficult, but I don't, want to disparage people and say that there's some like all Oromo hate all Amhara and vice versa. I don't think it's like that. People are intermarried. There's all sorts of different pieces. And I think it's important we don't lose sight of that in the context of this because there are so many people who want it to only be viewed through one lens because that is ultimately what is best for them and their own desire to be power brokers and put themselves in that position. No, I mean, I think that's really, really well said. And you can apply that same logic to so many parts of the global South in particular, where it's always just like, no, these are thousands of years of hatred, you know, ancient hatreds. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, how does Ethiopia, well, I guess the sort of like everything you just explained about Ethiopia, how does that intersect with this uh, deal, this uh, new... I guess, I don't know if it's like a, a actually like official official or so far it's just like a memorandum kind of deal, but Ethiopia and Somaliland have had, you know, have come to terms with this like port deal. Uh, and a lot of countries are either okay with it or very upset with it, <laughs> um, mostly upset with it. So can you talk about how this bleeds into that? Yes. Well, I think a couple ways. I mean, you know, one, the whole issue of ports, right, is a development issue. Um, And so it's sort of deeply intertwined with the broader conversation happening across all of these countries about Mm -hmm. how to develop the countries, how to bring in, you know, a greater level of a greater and higher standard of living. Right. Um, But it's also deeply related to this question of borders, this question of colonial history, all these different pieces. Uh, But, you know, Suffice it to say that the reason why all of there's so much anger towards this, not just in Somalia, but people around the world, uh, almost every country, it seems, seems to be basically speaking up against this deal between Ethiopia and Somaliland, is that it seems almost designed to be done in a way that is deliberately inflammatory. Um, you know, there's a lot of com- sort of complicated issues that have to be brought in here. The number one complicated issue and the reason why it's become an issue, maybe just to start there, is because it is about the territorial integrity of Somalia. So Somaliland insists that it is an independent country. They've been insisting this since 1991. No one except I think Taiwan actually recognizes Somaliland as a country. Maybe there's somebody else that I don't know of, but I think Taiwan is the only one. And I think it's pretty obvious to see why Taiwan would have that level of interest in this. Um, But it also speaks to how little, you know, real purchase hold the claim seems to have. And so of late, 
the Somaliland government has been really in overdrive in the US and the UK trying to gain official recognition from one of these big, powerful countries. And the basic agenda that they have put forward in Somaliland and what what they've actually been saying, I actually read this in Voice of America, so it's not me saying this, um, that their pitch to the United States and the UK is, we will be the best friend of the West in the region. So remember, it's geostrategic, crucial, mm-hmm. crucially important for US imperialism. And their pitch is, even Djibouti, which, by the way, is very friendly to the West. But, you know, Djibouti also has a Chinese base, uh, the only Chinese base outside the country in Djibouti. So they're basically saying you can't really trust them because even though they are have this massive U.S. and French military base, they are allowing themselves to be the power projection of U.S. imperialism in many of these countries across Africa, uh, France as well key part of their former chain of bases, which are now, of course, being dismantled um, by people all across the Sahel, that you can't trust them. But you can trust us, Somaliland. You know, like we are 100% with you in the West. So they've been really trying to push forward this issue of recognition um, in the past, you know, year or so in particular um, by, you know, so putting themselves in this way. And I say all that to say that they are obviously hoping to have governments, big governments, powerful governments, notable governments recognize them. Ethiopia, of course, is the seat of the African Union. It's one of the most historic countries in Africa around the world. People know about it. It's history. Whatever people say, it's maybe, you know, misunderstood, whatever. It's out there. It's known. Like, it's a big country to have Ethiopia come out and recognize you. So they did this deal ostensibly, Somaliland, to get recognition. And the deal is to lease a certain amount of land and to give a certain amount of port access at the Berbera port to Ethiopia, allegedly in exchange for recognition. So that, of course, kicks off a firestorm because now that would basically formalize, um, you know, the the, the balkanization of Somalia. Um, and of course, Somalis, by and large, want their country to be united, not balkanized. They've been fighting against that since 2007 when Ethiopia and the U.S. connived to invade Somalia, right? So... Now, what's actually happening is like, you know, Ethiopia is backpedaling. They're saying now that they never agreed to officially recognize them, that that's not what it's about, that they're just leasing land, blah, 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 blah. But nothing they did moving forward on this plan was designed to do anything other than raise all of the, the, these fears. And there's a deeper history to it because the, the, the reality of Somaliland and why they have a certain level of autonomy is to some degree linked to something called the Somali National Movement that during the 1980s, especially when the Saeed Bar was the head of Somalia and the country was united, they had differences with Saeed Bar. They were heavily rooted in the Isak clan, which is in the Hargeisa area in some parts of Somaliland, but not all of it, which is crucial. Um, and Ethiopia was a major supporter of them because there was tension between Ethiopia and Somalia. So after the fall of Saeed Bar's government, when Somalia starts to break apart, these individuals were able to essentially create Somaliland as a generally kind of an autonomous region, um, as it were. But many people have argued over the years, I'm not going to weigh in on this, but I'm just going to say they've argued it over the years that Ethiopia supported the SMN, SNM in the 80s sort of as a precursor and that the TPLF has supported to some degree the Somaliland thing. Also, the current Ethiopian government has also supported the sort of autonomy that it's sort of a precursor to uh, subsuming it and to become a part of Ethiopia or at least a country that's so dependent that it basically is, even if it has formal kind of, you know, independence or autonomy in some way, shape or form. So in addition to just the general issue of Somali sovereignty, it also hits on some deep um, issues around that issue in a, ma- in a in a major way. Now, Ethiopia says they're doing it because they have to have access to a port. 
I, I don't I don't understand that. I mean, I I don't know where it's written that a country must have access to a port and without access to the Red Sea that they cannot somehow be successful. I mean, there's I think seven or eight ports in the surrounding countries from Ethiopia that are more than willing, and many of them, some of them, quite frankly, already taking Ethiopian goods out of their port. Um, now, there is, of course, a question of what deal you have to strike. Mm-hmm. And I think for the Ethiopian government, it would be preferable to not have to, you know, engage in any significant yeah. uh, arbitrage here over what it's going to look like. So you pick a co- place like Somaliland, they don't really have a choice. Ultimately, um, you know, they can't really make any counter demands on Ethiopia in terms of the use of the Berber report. Um, so ultimately, it's a, it's probably the best deal they could possibly get. But it's certainly the the point they're trying to make the Ethiopians, which again, I, I, I can't understand it, quite frankly, um, is that somehow... They have to have access to this territory to have a navy. I don't know why you have to have a navy um, and to have, you know, guaranteed <laughs> access to the Red Sea, which exactly, which doesn't really make any sense to me either because they could easily, you know, and quite frankly, when you look at some of the areas where there's a lot of economic activity, you can make a case that if they were trying to get a port anywhere. Some of they should be looking at Kenya um, as much as they should be looking at uh, Somaliland or Djibouti, where most of it goes out through now. Um, so there's a lot of controversies over you know, that issue. And I think that that really puts you in a, in a place where it seems that what Ethiopia is really motivated by is, is power, right? Mm-hmm. Is to be able to make what is the equivalent of a land grab, essentially, um, in order to increase their own ability to, you know, leverage their economic development in a way that is mainly beneficial to the sort of ruling elites of Ethiopia, even if it undermines regional unity um, in the broader Horn of Africa. But I think what we've seen, you know, and honestly, I I think Ethiopia has been trying to displace this on other countries for over a year now. They're blaming Eritrea. They say, well, Eritrea doesn't want to, you know, give us access to their ports, Uh, you know, but they've never presented any evidence of what's really happening, except a couple speeches by Abiy Ahmed that they didn't accept some deal he put on the table. Um, you know, Somalia has its own particular challenges. Sudan now has its own particular challenges. Kenya is definitely an option, but for whatever reason, they, you know, don't want to, you know, open that up and, and talk about that in a real way. So to me, it seems that all of their justifications are are not logical. Um, they could easily grow economically significantly by not controlling one port. And there is no country that has a port in the region that has any interest in not being a partner with Ethiopia in development that would allow more goods to flow out of their ports. It just becomes a question of what are the terms of trade going to be? So it seems to me that Ethiopia is using its, 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 its leverage over Somaliland to increase, uh, to basically not have to negotiate in good faith and to be able to sort of abandon it. But it's unclear to me why you would not want to have a broader discussion with every Horn of Africa country with access to the ocean about how to have a broader development strategy that helps yeah. everyone. You know, you look in Somalia, there's in Puntland, some of this, the Garasad port, which is a very, very small port, very, very small. But why it's notable is it's Somalis building their own port. They're not bringing in Dubai ports world. They're not doing all these other things. They're trying to develop their own area and their own country. And they're trying to build a road to Ethiopia so that they can be a part of the development of the overall region. So why would you not want to build on that? And the final thing I'll just say about this before I I close, because I'm kind of rambling on this issue, quite frankly, but, um, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. opposition to the, the deal is totally fake. Um, the reality is, is the U.S. just last year had a major military exercise in the Horn of Africa where the Berber report 
was one of the, the, the places that they were doing this military exercise. Mm. And I wrote to every possible person, Rania, from the, the people doing the military game, the U.S.-Africa Command, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the U.S. Forces. I'm writing to everybody. And I said, does this, actually, does this represent a change in the U.S. position on Somalia? Of course, none of them wrote back to me because none of them want to admit the reality that they do want to cultivate Somaliland as a U.S.-based uh, client, but they just don't want to move in such a way that it's going to upset all of Somalia. So they kind of want to smuggle it in from behind, um, you know, this attempt to create a greater client port area um, that is basically adjacent to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Um, and they're saying they support Somalia. They do not support Somalia. They are not really at all, but they just don't, they don't want the smoke of being known to do it. I'll also just add Somaliland now is fraying very much at the, at the edges you know, the SSC region, which you can see there, kind of the blue right about the, right near the purple at the sort of point there. Um, they have seceded from Somaliland and they're trying oh. to reintegrate into um, Somalia in a more profound way. And then even the area where this port, this naval base is allegedly supposed to be built by Ethiopia, you got people taking up arms saying that we're going to fight them and we don't want to be a part of this. So, you know, it's it's notable because this also is leading to a greater disintegration and turmoil in the Somaliland region. But I think Ethiopia, which is also going out of its way to try to continue to cultivate the United States and Europe um, in a major way, I think also partially what they're motivated by here, not just, you know, having a good economic deal by kind of bullying someone into one. Um, but I also think that they're hoping that by doing a deal like this, that makes it appear as if they're stabilizing Somaliland to some degree and helping it grow, so on and so forth, that that will be looked on favorably by Western nations who would like to see that sort of peace. So I don't really have any evidence for that last thing. I'll just put that out there openly that that's my own conjecture. Um, could be wrong, but it seems that when you put the pieces together of what Somaliland is shopping itself to, the, the reality of Ethiopia, which is de facto sanctioned by the United States, um, the fact that the UK, which has a lot of supporters of Somaliland in the government and outside of the government is now all of a sudden cozying up to Ethiopia militarily and so on and so forth. It all seems to be kind of coming again in this piece of how do we create a divide and conquer reality in the Horn of Africa and the Nile Basin region. Yeah, I I think that's very, very well put. And, you know, I think that it would do, it would be an injustice to, um, we, we should like do our own, another episode entirely on just Sudan because it deserves more than just like one question. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that we can't get too, too deep into it right now because it does need time. But how does the the war in Sudan tie into everything else you've talked about? Um, and I guess that does require to give like a brief background to what's happening there, which we have been uh, covering, you know, pretty regularly, I would say on on the on the freedom side. Yes, no, absolutely. And uh, I think if people check out the interviews we've done, they'll get a lot of it. And yeah, I think maybe all of these, quite frankly, deserve their own episode. And I'm yeah. always happy to come back to Dispatches with Rania Kalik. Did I you think, guys you know, hear that? Eugene's yes. offering to come back. <laughs> I'm majorly shorthanded Ethiopia, Somalia. And, and it's just two, and before I get to Sudan, I think that's one of the elements too about this, Rania, is there's two levels of the conversation. Because, you know, for people who are deeply embroiled in the horn, they know all the issues. Yeah. So you can kind of go in and short handed. But for the vast majority of people, all you see is these terrible headlines. People are dying, people are starving. And that's all you really know. So it's like how to hit both those things. I think it requires multiple touches on the issue. So I think, you know, hopefully people can forgive me to some degree for, uh, you know, summarizing these, these very dense issues very quickly. But, you know, the, the Sudan... 
And again, I think you can link Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia together that all of them are actually countries that are in transition, right? And the conflicts that are existing in those countries are basically the unresolved contradictions that are making it difficult to transfer into a new dispensation, um, you know, that could lead to greater, you know, prosperity for all of their people, so to speak. Um, Sudan has now erupted into a civil war um, that has displaced something like 7 million people. Many people consider that to actually be a undercount. No one knows even really exactly how many people have died, but it's tens of thousands, but there's just not good enough reporting. So I don't even want to say a number because it's almost certainly any number that's out there is undoubtedly an undercount. And the country now is is at risk of breaking apart um, in many different ways. But the the sort of roots of this is the government from 1989 to 2018 was a government that uh, the the National Congress Party had had some different names uh, over the time, but it was led by a guy named Omar al-Bashir. Ultimately, the contradictions of that government, many of which are similar, right, to the same contradictions that led people to unite and raise, raise their voices in mass protests against the TPLF in Ethiopia, which is lack of opportunity, uh, you know, the, the unemployment amongst the youth, the lack of development and poverty in general, and the fact that there is a very clear sort of ethnic and spatial distribution of the relatively limited goods that were available. So you have a deeply unequal society that's divided sort of between top and bottom, like a very small number of people have money and most people are very poor, but then that's also divided spatially, right? Like going all the way back to the time of really... British colonialism, the sort of sin, and that's sort of the history of modern Sudan, right, is sort of the British Anglo-Egyptian colonial realities. The ruling elites tend to come from the center part of the country, the riverine Nile areas of the country, um, where the peripheries, Darfur, which people know, but also in the eastern part of the country, what's now South Sudan and places like that, are traditionally kept further away from 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 power and access to, you know, the full fruits of their resources. So, of course, in all those areas, you have various different um, elites who are making money, but by and large, you know, they're excluded. So you have this deeply unequal society. People want to see significant change. Again, you've got a very young country, and I think we have to continually underline that when we talk about Africa, because you've got people who have... They, they do not want to live another generation or two generations in poverty under neocolonialism. Like, they, it's their parents, their grandparents... And depending on how young they are, maybe even their great great grandparents, they've seen that. They know that story. Um, you know, good friend of the show, Ilya Samari, uh, always mm-hmm. says that in China, they correctly talk about the hundred years of humiliation of colonialism, that Africa should really start talking, and Africans talking about 500 years of humiliation with the slave trade and colonialism and what it's done to us. People know that history. They know what's up. They're hip to that. They want to move beyond that for sure. So this huge protest movement erupts 2018, 2019, Bashir is kicked out. And the part of the way he's kicked out is some of his own people were so scared that they were all going to be wiped away by this deluge of this huge mass protest coming to the forefront that they just threw Bashir overboard and decided to cut a deal with some more elite and I would argue Western-oriented elements of the protest movement. And they really set to work then to try to get what the communists in Sudan called a soft landing, to find a way to have whatever the next regime is. It would certainly be more representative, but they didn't want it to be too representative. And the reason for that is, if you look at what was really coming out of the protest movement, the backbone of which was the resistance committees, the trade unions, the more radical political parties, the communist party, the Ba'ath party, actually the base of a lot of the main political parties that were more radical, the professional organizations from you know pharmacists to doctors or whatever, you know they were talking about 
free healthcare and free education and quality free healthcare and free education. They were talking about ending the, you know, corrupt crony capitalist model where if you were tied to the government, you got rich and no one else had an opportunity so that wealth could be shared more equally. They wanted to strengthen the rights of trade unions so that workers would have the ability to, you know, fight for for better wages and working conditions. They wanted to reject the IMF and World Bank dictates on Sudan that were destroying the country. They wanted to end the policy of just selling off the land to people from Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar for no money whatsoever so that they could grow food to export and do nothing for the Sudanese people. Uh, Subsequently, they wanted to end the normalization of Israel with Israel, which this government, this absurd so-called transitional regime, decided to sign up to the Abraham Accords. Now, of course, they did it to get sanctions relief and money, but that's no excuse. Uh, That's blood money. And people in Sudan hate Israel. I mean, like there's almost no other country other than, I don't know, Lebanon, you know, where people hate Israel. I mean, it's really the 1967 cartoon conference, the three no's like Sudan is the cradle of or one of the cradles of resistance of the Palestinian people. This is why uh, it was targeted under Bashir by Clinton in 98. It was yeah. not targeted for any other reason. It was targeted because they if you want weapons, you want missiles, you want whatever, Sudan was like, we'll do it. Uh, when they say we're sanctioning this Hamas business people, that's why half of them are living in Khartoum. So ultimately, people in Sudan are like, normalization with Israel, so they want to end that too. So ultimately, if you had a government that was too representative, these traditional elites would lose all of their power. Mm. And the Western countries, that, and the Gulf countries as well, that were dependent on these people maintaining a certain model, they would lose a lot of their influence. And so you had this attempt to come to a soft landing, but you had one big problem, is the military was split. Now, you had the traditional military, the Sudanese Armed Forces, led by Lieutenant General Burhan, who is now technically the head of uh, Sudan. People may know him and see him. Then you had the Rapid Support Forces led by a guy named Himdati. And Rapid Support Forces were mainly based in Darfur, although they had moved around. And they were like a wing of the army, but they had their own command structure, their own sort of economy element to them. And there was a disagreement between RSF and SAF over how to integrate into one army. Mm -hmm. RSF viewed the issue of integration as liquidation of their, their fiefdom that they had set up. So they wanted a long transition, like 10 years, Um, and the SAF viewed RSF as opponents in the sort of elite level game to control the resources of Sudan um, and to be the interlocutor with these powerful foreign entities, the US, the EU, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, and others, um, who are, well, less Qatar, but really UAE, Saudi Arabia, US, UK, EU, big players there and all this different piece. Um, And so they wanted like a quick transition, like one year. Um, Both sides thinking that, you know, long or short would benefit their own ability to maintain power. They couldn't agree, so they started fighting each other and they plunged the country into a civil war. And that's the war that we are in now. And that's why it has such a zero-sum nature to it, because you really have two entities that feel it's zero-sum, that if the other side wins, they're out. And they still want a share of power and they can't agree on that. And that's now breaking down in, in many different ways, the country is becoming balkanized. There's even a possibility of a Libya-type scenario. There is intensified Ooh. diplomacy, and I, I'd like to think that that diplomacy can succeed, um, but we've seen a lot of the diplomatic tracks that seem to have some promise at the start of this year have seemed to shrivel. The resistance committees have been forced to basically just become mutual aid hubs in these totally war-torn territories. You look at groups like the Communist Party being heavily targeted right now. For instance, the editor of their newspaper has been detained by the Rapid Support Forces, who also have have actually been heavily uh, harassing the communists for some time. But on the same token, you have the SA 
USAF, which is now using you know national unity and popular mobilization to liquidate those who are talking about things like ending crony capitalism, addressing the IMF and the World Bank, like those sorts of voices are being silenced on both sides, actually. Um, so it's a very difficult, tricky situation. Um, it's it's you hope it's moving towards something, but there's so many different shifting sands, and you also have different regional players. Uh, in Sudan and in Ethiopia that have their own interests that are also sort of trying to make it more of a zero-sum game because they too see their influence and ability to to determine what happens in the country to be somewhat determined by uh, the the zero-sum outcome of the conflict. So it's it's tragic and it's derailed a moment. And maybe that's just where I'll close, Rania, because I know we want to pull to a close. It's been a long time here and we could talk all day about this. But this... uh, there was a moment of great hope in the broader Horn of Africa, Nile Basin region in about 2018, 2019, because you have this unprecedented historical transition happening in Ethiopia, where not only do you have Amharas and Oromos coming together internally, you have Somalis becoming a part of it as well. You have the Southern peoples who are becoming a part of it. You have the very, very, very notable, and we haven't talked about this at all. Maybe we should talk about it real quick before we go out. Eritrea, um, relationship between Ethiopia and Eritrea starting to, to open up, which was, you know, huge culturally in many different ways. Um, you know, you have Somalia that's fighting to emerge from this multi-decade civil war. So you had this moment where it seemed like we were in a promising period of transition towards a more unified, stronger, more assertive region focused on peace and development and moving out of this zone of neocolonialism. Now we're being dragged back into it. We're being dragged back into it by all of these various conflicts, many of which are real, have to be addressed. You can't just push them to the side and act like you can't talk about it. So that's not an option, but they have to be overcome, I think, with a vision towards what can make the region better. I mean, this is the nature of Pan-Africanism as a concept. Pan-Africanism is not like, let's all get together and sing Kumbaya because we like each other. It's an ideology where where unity between African people is a precondition for economic development and prosperity of African people because Africans understand that it is a divide and conquer colonial border realities that have kept Africans down for all these different years. So you got to get rid of that system. You got to start to build on the natural synergies that are not covered by any of these borders to pursue multiple multi-level development strategies. I mean, this was a point that Eritrean President Afwerki made in Russia last year. I was actually in Eritrea when this was happening. It was a big topic of discussion is he was being interviewed by Sputnik and they kept asking him all these questions, you know, like about what are the bilateral relations between Eritrea and Russia? And he kept coming back to the point of, well, we have our bilateral relations, but the issue isn't really bilateral relations. The issue is multilateral relations. How is Russia, which has good relations, by the way, with Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, not as much Somalia, but uh, certainly Djibouti as well and some of the other countries as well. How is what Russia wants to bring to the region able to be synergized across the region to meet the the, the the goals that these African countries have for one another where they have to work together? And I thought that was a very prescient point because you have to move beyond this, this, this sort of divide and conquer reality. If you want to lift all these countries out of poverty and neocolonialism, they have to cooperate more. They have to come up with joint development plans. And, and sadly, you know, the only country really preaching this is Eritrea. Um, most of the other countries have become lost now in various different elements. 
Um, I think Eritrea definitely deserves more credit, by the way, um, for being kind of an island of stability in an unstable region. People don't want to give it any credit for that, but that to me seems like it counts for a lot. Um, but I think it's the only sort of political project in the region that has is continually trying to push forward this idea of if we don't work together, we will all, you know, as Benjamin Franklin said, you know, either you hang together or you hang separately. So at the, you know, at the end of the day, or you either win together or you hang separately. Sorry, I've got the, I'm losing it here now. But the point being, you know, the, the fact there's only really one country in the region pushing this, um, and it's the most demonized country, and that's the relationship. There's a Why is Eritrea sanctioned? Small country, not really bothering America, that's for sure. Why are they sanctioning them? They're because obviously they sanctioning the most, them it, because, because they, they can't the control most, them. Right, and that's one of the reasons it's the most stable, by the way, is because it's not being controlled by the U.S. Yes, and it, it also has the fairest distribution of resources. I mean, right. listen, Eritrea has addressed some of these issues, I think, better than other countries. Like, anyone who spends any time around Eritreans, you know, there's nine ethnic groups in Eritrea because they're always pointing out that there's nine ethnic groups, you know? They talk about the historical creation of Eritrea as a modern country based on all of the various historical and cultural factors to understand who's, why people speak certain languages, why the borders are what they are, where the people's historical and cultural background comes from, why some people are Orthodox, why some people are Muslims, all these different pieces. They also don't have an official language. They have three working languages, but no official languages because no language is better than another. But then you add to that the fact that even though the country itself is, is certainly poor, what, no, no African country is poor. They don't have as much access to the goods they need to be as developed as other countries, but they're rich in many ways. Um, but there is a strong focus on the equitable distribution of the resources that do exist. And when you have a more equitable distribution of resources, even when you don't have a lot, it generates more unity. It generates more peace. Um, when you have deeply unequal relationships um, in countries where there's great poverty, it generates significant conflict, significant war, and significant things coming together. And I think that many of the people who spend a lot of time online praising Eritrea from some of these other countries would actually do very well to stop praising and start studying and recognize that a lot of the th- that it's not an accident that the things they praise about Eritrea are happening. They're happening because there's particular policies. And as you know very well, Rania, when we had the opportunity to talk off the record with the president of Eritrea, he himself stressed this issue of the importance of unity across yes. the country and, and the, the undermining uh, uh, capabilities of all these different pieces. So you just hope that more of that will actually be integrated into the political thinking and structure of other individuals. But we can have a whole other thing. Um, folks can go to BreakthroughNews.org. I've written several articles about Eritrea um, that I think are very much doing. We've done a number of different interviews, different pieces like that. But again, I think it is the most demonized country in the region because it has the most anti-hegemonic approach to global world and regional affairs, the most pan-African approach, and I think the furthest reaching understanding of how weakened the region is becoming by giving in to all of these various different conflicts. So... We'll see where 2024 goes, but at the end of the day, as I've said once, and I'll say it again, the number one policy of imperialists towards the Horn of Africa is keep them divided. They do not want this to become a key pole in an emerging multipolar world. The ascension to, of Ethiopia and Egypt to BRICS only moves forward that possibility, and that's partially why you see a lot of these divisions starting to happen right now. And ultimately, whether or not there's disintegration in the Horn of Africa um, or unity in the Horn of Africa will determine a lot about the nature of the continent, the region, and the globe moving forward this year. Well, Eugene, I think that was a fantastic uh, just 
contextualization of what's taking place in the region right now. And I, I mean, we, we definitely have to come back and do uh, more episodes that's, that, that really go into each country. Um, but also, I do want to encourage people, like Eugene said, we have a lot of content um, on especially on Eritrea. I mean, there, I think there's like a really, really good t- a segment we did. Well, it was a part of an episode, but you went pretty deep into why Eritrea is demonized. And I love what you said about start praising, uh, keep praising, but also start studying. Because um, it's important. It's like there are these alternative models uh, around the world. And when it comes to the Horn of Africa, but Africa specifically, I think Eritrea is a really important alternative model for, for things that can work. It's why it's so demonized. So super cool that we got to go there. You've been there more than once um, and see it with our own eyes. Uh, and, and I'll be back you know, to all my yeah. friends in Eritrea. Don't worry. You can't get rid of me that easy. I'll be back. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, that's true. I know you will. You will definitely be going back. I hope I get to go back someday. But Eugene, um, I guess that's a good place to wrap. Uh I mean, I know you are a part of Breakthroughs, but why don't you why don't you remind everybody where they can uh, find your content? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can find all of our content at BT Newsroom across all your social media platforms. You can find me on Twitter only at Eugene per year. You can find all of the stuff we do very easily across anywhere. It's got all the right links and different pieces at breakthroughnews.org. And of course, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news, become a patron. All of your support is deeply, deeply related. And I I just have to say on that, Rania, many of our strongest supporters are people who are either in the Horn of Africa or from the Horn of Africa and living in the diaspora. And I just want to say we deeply, deeply appreciate everything um, that folks from those communities have done for Breakthrough. It's been honestly huge um, for us as a platform. And and we just appreciate you supporting us on all of our work, not just what we do in the Horn of Africa. So just want to also do say that um, as well. But patreon.com. Slash breakthrough news. Did you, did you see that? I made a heart like this. You did. I did see and that. It, and hearts. Oh, but then, but then it froze. <laughs> why am I freezing? You can hear me though. I, I don't know why you're freezing. I can <laughs> oh, definitely hear no, you. I think it's because it was a sorry. heart emoji. One more time. I'm going to do it one more time. I thought, I thought you might be actually doing a little bit of a sports reference. No. Um, <laughs> no, I, I didn't know this was a feature of stream route. I think it needs, it has a few kinks in it. Yeah. But okay. Well, I know you're a big Taylor Swift fan, and her boyfriend, you wow. know, Travis Kelsey, did a little heart wow. for her after he yeah, scored. And I thought maybe you were trying to reference Taylor Swift NFL. You're trying to be cool oh, and hip. Taylor, I don't know. Taylor Swift is a fantastic musician, um, and that's. I'm just gonna leave it there because I could see Eugene boiling. Okay. I'm just gonna say no comment because I don't want any Swifties coming from me online. No comment. <laughs> no comment. He's scared to be bullied. Well, yes. listen, everybody, thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Dispatches, uh, live episode, I should say. Um, and Eugene, thank you so, so, so much for joining me. And also, uh, be sure to tune into our live stream on Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, where we, I mean, I assume everybody who's watching has watched it, but if you haven't, what are you doing with your life? Um, so we'll see you Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in.